Hey everyone, welcome to the Legendary Tales podcast. I'm your host, Adam Blore, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Isadora Martin-Dye. Hello. This is the super cool podcast where we tell you and all of your family members and all of your co-workers and all of your pets about cryptids, legendary people, legendary places, and legendary events. Yeah, guys, don't forget how much your pets enjoy listening to us. Yeah, um, our pets enjoy listening to us, so I don't know why yours wouldn't. No, no. This is another batch episode. Yeah. Um, I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm, but you don't know what, I don't know what you're talking about. No. Um, and that's... It's a yeah. person. It's a person. Okay, a, so we're both a, doing people. It's a literary person. Really? You're yeah. doing a literary person too? I did. I Google, wow. I Google searched tragic authors after you told me that you were doing Shakespeare. Wait, aren't we supposed to be doing a more positive episode today? Yeah, but this one was sort of interesting. This one, okay. this one had a had a because we felt like we bummed you out last. This week. one had a mysterious death, so this Ooh. one has some some spy intrigues. So maybe not lighthearted, but a little bit. Mine's not lighthearted. You can't. Legends aren't really lighthearted affairs. No, they're not. No, but mine, it's a bit fun. It's a bit. It's a bit mysterious, but well, maybe like, not mysterious. For those that haven't listened to my the one we did where I did art thieving, Ooh, art yeah. heist, yeah, that was a fun one. That was a fun one. We should do more famous because now that you know. Now, we mentioned every TV show we're watching, and yeah. now that we're binging White Collar, yeah. I think every time Neil Caffrey does something cool with a lockpick, I'm like, dang. <laughs> my, <laughs> I missed out on my life if, as a career yeah, criminal. Yeah, as a career White Collar criminal. <laughs> How unfortunate for it's me. It's still early. You've still got room I know. I'm not even in my 30s yet. You can achieve. <laughs> the 30s are the new 20s. Yep. So you can still achieve. We'll see. Some maybe, good white coloring. Maybe I'll, I'll this is all going to be used as evidence against me in like a decade. <laughs> Not against me. This Not, is where we've uh, This is where we um where I'm implicated for my my lifetime of stealing priceless artifacts and paintings and things. Sure. Cool. All right, can I put them some of them off my house? Can you do what? Can I put some Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that like a Degas would look really nice in the Potters. It would actually. <laughs> I like Degas. Okay. We don't like Picasso though. So. No. I have a real thing about Picasso. So my mom used to live next to the uh Picasso Museum in Antibes in France. Mm. And ugh, I'm <clears throat> sorry. I know that don't, I don't, don't get me wrong. Don't I actually add us. <laughs> I actually quite like some more experimental art and I like some of Picasso's t- contemporaries. Just don't like Picasso. Just don't like Picasso. Don't add us. No. Well, you can. Oh, we have please, a Twitter. Please add us. <laughs> we have a Twitter now. We have a Twitter now because we're trying to up our social media game. Or Dora's yeah. trying to up our social media game. Yep. Um, trying to force me to get involved. Which hasn't worked so far. No, because I was busy doing stuff with the Swingdom yesterday. Okay. The Swingdom being the other podcast that Adam is involved in and yeah. YouTube channel and uh, things. It's just a... It, if you want to see Adam's face, if you're not just done listening to his beautiful voice <laughs> and you want to see his face... His horrible visage. It's go on to the, the YouTube channel on the, swing, the Swingdom on YouTube and the, you'll get to see his The 100 his Miles face. 100 Holes videos started coming out. Yep, that's cool. In promotion of our charity walk. So if you're feeling generous this Christmas season, go give that a check out. Yep. It's all it's all good. It's all good. Busy weeks. But anyway... I'm up a, first. This is a bulk episode and you're up first. Um, okay. And guys, when we talk about bulk episodes, what we're doing is Adam's about to head off for Christmas. So we try and get them recorded in advance. Yes, try to. Uh, so that then if anything should happen or yeah. we can't get a hold of each other on Zoom or we're just busy enjoying our holidays, um, you, guys still get you still get content, which is why sometimes you might find that it's the world is ever changing very quickly right now. And the reason why we uh, tell you when it's a bulk episode is because we actually don't know what's going to have happened yeah. between now and 10 days when this episode is due to be yeah. released. So don't blame us if the world is more on fire or less on fire and we haven't mentioned it. 
I'm going to stop fiddling with that now. Adam cannot keep his hands still ever. I need a fidget spinner. Okay, so I'm doing Shakespeare. Cool. Well, I'm not really doing Shakespeare. I'm doing... Kevin Bacon. Not Kevin Bacon. Francis Bacon. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon, the famous... I'm going to do... Did William Shakespeare actually write his own stuff? Okay. Um, so I'm going to start with a quote, because I realize we haven't done any poems We've done any poems. We haven't done any uh, prophesizing. No, Which you no. promised months ago. I know. It's bad. Maybe that's what will go up on our new Instagram. Maybe I'll do a prophecy once a week on the Instagram. Just start quoting ourselves. Uh-huh. We're the most important people in this podcast, so we can say whatever we want. That is true. Um, I'm going to start with all the world is a stage and the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts. Okay. Which I feel is a good thing to remember. Okay. Um, you should always be uh, the star of your own show, not a bit player in your own life. So, William Shakespeare. I'm going to tell you about William Shakespeare, and then I'll tell you why some people don't think anything I'm about to tell you is right. Great. Okay. William Shakespeare was born in... 26th April in 1564. All my information, by the way, has come from Wikipedia because it was the longest Wikipedia article I have legitimately ever read. <laughs> Usually I read them and I'm like, okay, I need to flush out this with yeah, like stuff. Stuff. This was just, I mean, the, I went down like two Wikipedia link rabbit holes and I was reading for hours. So. Okay, cool. All Wikipedia. I actually had my research done before Isadora this week, so... He did. Which He's is, been... a, I think, a, a history first in terms of our yeah. podcast. Yeah. So this is going to go up with a special gold star for me. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, for once, did his homework. Um, so he is widely regarded as the greatest writer in English language. Um, which Dora is well-known for butchering. speaking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he is often known as England's national poet and the Bard of Avon. Um Obviously, his plays have been translated into every major living language and are performed more often by any other playwright. Mm. So he's, you know, the where's, Mac Daddy of... Where's Avon? Uh, Stratford of Avon is in Warwickshire. Okay. And at the age of 18, so he was born there, raised very sketchy amount of information about his early life. Mm -hmm. um, he was raised, they think he went to the local grammar school. His dad was a glove maker. Um... That was a real profession. Um, at the age of 18, he married Anne Hathaway. What? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> really? You didn't know that? No. Okay. Yeah, he married Anne Hathaway. Uh, she was, I think, five years his senior. Some of this, by the way, is not just Wikipedia. This is own personal lesbian knowledge. Yeah. Um, I think he was five years his senior. I do know she was knocked up when they got married, and that was why they got married. Salacious. Uh-huh, because he had his first child six months after the wedding. And they had to, like, do a whole load of things. Like, they had to fast-forward the marriage. There was some, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, they, yeah. Shotgun wedding. Shotgun wedding. Uh, so they had their first child. Child was called Susanna. And then they had twins, Hamnet and Judith. Hamnet, not Hamlet. Okay. Just so everyone's aware. So, 1585 to 1592, um, it's referred to as the lost years of Shakespeare. And that is because... Most of the information reported in these times would have been marriage certificates, children's births, and children's deaths. I believe Hamnet died um, early. I can't remember what of off the top of my head. Anything. Something. It was, it was the Elizabethan. 16th century. <laughs> yeah. Um, England. Uh, so he died of something. So there's those reports in the church. Mm -hmm. 
of ha- of Shakespeare's life, but there's no. He doesn't really appear until uh, nineteen uh, fifteen ninety two. So that would have made him thirty eight years old. Is that correct, Matt? I can't remember when you said he was born. 28 years old. 1564. 64 to 92. Is that 38 or 28 years? Adam's doing math for me. 28. (laughs) Okay, so when he... So he basically disappeared between the ages of 18 and 28. Okay. Um, So there's lots of different stories. Nicholas Rowe, who was Shakespeare's first biographer, recounted a Stratford legend that Shakespeare fled the town for London to escape prosecution for deer poaching in the estate of a local squire, um, uh, whose name was Thomas Lucy, which seems like a weird amount of information, yeah. like a weirdly specific piece of information. He is, uh, and then they say he also, proof of that is that he wrote a ballad about him later. Thomas Lucy. Yeah. Um, Another 18th century story has Shakespeare starting his theatrical career minding the horses of theatre patrons in London. He did live in London. Uh, So at some point he, yeah, very quickly it seems like he abandoned Anne Hathaway and moved to London. Not abandoned her. He still went back and he actually had a gorgeous, gorgeous house in Stratford-upon-Avon that she lived in. Okay. But he ran off to uh, London and I think fairly just, Lived the life of a single man. Mm. Um, so some have him being a country schoolmaster. That was a guy named John Aubrey. And other people think he was employed um, as by Alex Hogden of Lancashire, a Catholic landowner, because he named a William Shakespeare in his will. Okay. Um, also working as a schoolmaster or well, Shakespeare, his surname. So, uh, yeah, sh- but, and actually this is something I, I'm dyslexic, as you guys probably know by my butchering of the English language and unable to read, um, inability to read. <laughs> and I often tell my foster sisters who, one of whom is also dyslexic, that Shakespeare would spell his own name. Incorrectly. Incorrectly all the time. Okay. Uh, or different ways all the time, which is Part of what we're going to talk about, yeah. But the point being is that Shakes Shakes Shaft is actually a fairly common name at this point, okay. Um, and Shakespeare is, and a lot of the time it was actually with a hyphen in it, Shake Dash Spear. Mm-hmm. So okay, there's lots of different ways that this could be. However, Shake Shaft was a common name in that area, so really there's not any evidence that any it was. evidence that it was William Shakespeare. Um. Sometime between 18, uh, 1585, so when he was about 21, okay, and 1592, mm-hmm. which is quite a big gap, he started a successful career in London as an actor, writer, and part owner of a company called the Lord Chamberlain's Men, which if any of you have watched Shakespeare in Love, is one of the major parts of that movie. Um, so... One of the first mentions of him was Robert Greene in his Groat's Worth of Wit. And he said, There is an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, that with his tiger hearts wrapped in a player's hide, supposes it supposes he as well as able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you, and being absolutely John Hans Factorium, Jack of all trades, in his own conceit, only shaped scene in country. Which is a quote. I love the, 
Victorian writing. Victorian? <laughs> Edwardian, whatever. Shakespearean? Whatever, it's terrible. Elizabethan? I hate it. It's like many years before Victorian. Old English is bad. Uh, so basically, I'm going to translate that for you. Thank you. Uh, which, uh, Shakespeare was often known as the crow. Like, mm -hmm. that was another monkey for him. Yeah. Um, Moniker. Moniker. He's just monkeyer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I wasn't even reading that. That was just my brain. That's off the top of the uh, So... That has um, some a little bit of as you like it in there, but also calling him a jack of all trades and obviously referring to Shakespeare himself. Yeah. Um, Shakespeare. Okay, so that was the first kind of real reference to him. He produced most of his known works between 1589 and 1613. Um, his earlier plays were primarily comedies and histories, and they're regarded as some of the best works ever produced in these genres. Then he marries mostly tragedies until 1608. In the last phase of his life, he wrote tragic comedies um, and collaborated with other playwrights. Many of Shakespeare's plays were published in editions of varying quality and accuracy in his lifetime. However, in 1623, so this is after a few years after he died, mm -hmm. two fellow actors and friends of Shakespeare, John Hemmings, and Henry Condell uh, published a more definitive work known as The First Folio. So that was published kind of like somewhere five to eight years after his death, which was um, a collection of his dramatic works that included all but two of his plays. Okay. The volume was had a poem in it by Ben Jonson, he, in which Johnson hailed Shakespeare in a now famous quote as not of an age, but for all time. Mm. So he wasn't just writing for the Shakespearean yeah. age. He was everything. A writer forever. Yeah. He died in 1616 at the age of 52. He died within a month of signing his will, um, mm. which is where he describes himself as being in perfect health. No one really describes how or why he died because he did die. It seems like he went, he retired a few years before that officially, mm -hmm. although no one I think at that point retired properly. Right, because no one had that kind of money. Luxury. <laughs> um, so, but he seemed to be in fairly good health. Okay. There's no accounts of him being sick. Um, and no one seems to know why he died. But half a century later, the vicar of Stratford, John Ward, wrote in his notebook, Shakespeare, Drayton, and Ben Jonson had a merry meeting, and it seems drank too hard, for Shakespeare died of a fever there contracted. Okay. Which... He died because he got too drunk? Yeah, apparently. Oh. Hmm. Um, and, and actually, one of the guys that he was supposed to have been drinking with said, We wondered, Shakespeare, that thou wentst too soon from the world stage to the grave's tiring room. So it seems like he died... A he bit pretty much yeah, got sick and died pretty quickly. Okay. So that's Shakespeare in a nutshell. Mm. His life. Um, now we're going to talk about a movement. And the movement is called anti-Stratfordarianisms, which is basically people that believe that Shakespeare wasn't it's not that they don't believe that Shakespeare existed. Oh my god. <laughs> well, they believe that William <laughs> Shakespeare existed. Yeah. And they believe that the person who wrote all of Shakespeare's poems was basically a person. Well, yes. They don't necessarily believe that the William Shakespeare from Stratford is the person that wrote Shakespeare's plays. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, not, not a difficult distinction, guys. <clears throat> I'm hoping you followed along with me. The core of the argument is that the Shakespeare canon, we'll just go with, I'm going to call it the Shakespeare canon when I'm not talking about 
Shakespeare. Does that make sense? So Shakespeare's canon of works. I'm now going to separate the works out from the man. Okay. Okay, that's what I was getting at. Yes. So we're going to put the man aside and just talk about the works. Okay. They exhibit broad learning, knowledge of foreign languages, geography, a familiarity with Elizabethan and Jacobean court and politics, uh, law, um, and they're basically, the major argument is no one but a highly educated individual or court insider could have written it. And... There's no instance of Shakespeare having that kind of education. Okay. They there's there's vital there's records of his baptism, marriage, death, tax records, lawsuits, real estate transactions. There's no doubt that he was a wealthy man. He was mm-hmm. buying big houses, but there's no document that ever attests that he had received any education or particularly bought any books. Okay. <laughs> Um, Is there a lot of evidence for people in that time period buying a lot of books? I mean, there's some fairly decent libraries built at that point, and they would have kept pretty good accounts. I've read quite – this is a weird brag. I've read a lot of Elizabethan household accounts. What a brag. I know. (laughs) What a brag. I'm very jealous that you've done that. I know. Uh, but in my in my history degree, that mm-hmm. was I, I looked at consumption particularly, mm-hmm. not like consumption the thing where you cough and die, but That's like consumption, yeah. <laughs> like consumption as to how you bought stuff, uh-huh. like literally materialistic stuff. And and actually, yes, there can be quite a lot of evidence in household accounts okay. of like. I mean, yeah, like libraries would exist, but I didn't think that like people were hanging on to the receipts for all of the books that they bought. They accounted for a lot of stuff, partic- okay. and books weren't cheap. It's no. not like you could pop down the secondhand bookstore and pick one up for right. a pound. Um, these were, you know. So so for, there seems to be a big gap here between what Shakespeare was recorded as owning and doing and the works that came out of the nom de plume of Shakespeare. Uh, these are some of the people that believe what I am going to tell you oh over the next few minutes. Oh, God. No, it's some big, <laughs> some big, big names. names. Walt Whitman, okay. Mark Twain, Helen Keller, Henry James, Sigmund Freud, John Paul Stevens, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, and Charlie Chaplin mm. have all... No one after 1920, I'm noticing. Prince Philip. <laughs> oh, Prince Philip, yeah. Well, I make mean, uh, to be fair, Prince Philip's... <laughs> that somewhere else. I mean, I love him, don't get me wrong, but like, he's not not the person you want endorsing your theory necessarily. Um, so let's go with it. Uh, so John Shakespeare, his father was a glove maker and town official. His When he married Shakespeare's mother, Mary Arden, uh, they both signed their names with a mark and no other examples of them being able to write are existing. Okay. So this, uh, guys, I'm going to give you all the arguments for why Shakespeare did not write his play. Okay. So this is often used as an indication that Shakespeare was actually brought up in an illiterate household. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also no evidence that Shakespeare's two daughters were literate. There are two signatures by Susanna that appear to have been drawn instead of written, which I hadn't thought about it until I read that comment, which is kind of an interesting. Yeah. You can learn to draw your signature without learning how to write your signature. And his other daughter, Judith, signed a legal document just with her mark. And basically this idea that if his parents were illiterate and his kids were illiterate, how much... Did he actually know how to write? How much did he even know how to write? Yeah. And why would he have let his daughters grow up illiterate Mm -hmm. if he was the greatest Mm -hmm. player? There's No, I'm not going to go into the counter-argument. The counter-argument to that is he wasn't exactly a hands-on father. Right. 
He did run. No, he did run off to London. Disappear off to London. Um, as you do. And women weren't exactly needing, needing to know how to read or write. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he has an extent. The, the Shakespeare canon um, has an extensive vocabulary. Uh, the author's vocabulary is calculated to be between seven and a half thousand and twenty nine thousand words. That's a big gap. Um, well, yeah, okay, but it's still a lot of words yes. that they knew. Again, he didn't seem to have much education or much reading, because mm -hmm. um, obviously you can be very educated without having to have gone to school. But usually, you need books. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare's six surviving authenticated signatures are characterized these the group that believes he didn't write them is characterized them as an illiterate scroll um foremost signatures all are written in secretary hand mm. a style of writing common to the era particularly in playwriting so but they don't show necessarily great education okay they say that nothing in the documentary record explicitly identifies Shakespeare as a writer. Uh, the evidence instead, this is again coming back to this, like, what did he buy? What did he do? The evidence instead supports a career as a businessman, real estate investor, and any prominence he may have had in the London theatrical world. I'm assuming that we're going to get to the point where his name has somehow become associated with these. Or is it that His name is on the works. Yeah, but it's yeah. That where he would have st either stolen them or paid someone to do it? We're getting there. Okay. No, I, um, if anything, I think the idea would have been that he was paid by someone okay, to, to put, be the front. Put his name on yeah. them. Okay. He was probably more into money lending, trading in theatrical properties, acting. He was definitely an actor. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's that. His will is mundane, unpoetic, and makes no mention of personal papers. It's a will. But it doesn't mention his books, poems, manuscripts. Okay. Again, expensive books. Books. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing like that's mentioned in there. He, uh, we'll get back to the thing. He does actually gift some money to the two actors we mentioned earlier that were his like best friends. Mm -hmm. The ones to he buy, was drinking with when he died. Yeah. To buy more. No, the ones that wrote the first folio. Okay. To buy mourning rings. Okay. I guess that was a thing. M-O-U-R, right? Yeah. M-O-U-R. Yeah. Like death rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's weird. But it was apparently written into, it's apparently a normal thing, mm. but it was also a handwritten after, they were all handwritten. I don't know why I said like that. Like in the margins. Yeah. Like an afterthought. afterthought. Also. Why is that, I'm sorry, why is that evidence for him not being well educated or is it just a, a note on what his will looked like? Just a note okay. on the fact that there was no books in there and that if he had produced all these very well-known plays, surely there would be manuscripts of them yeah. that he would have bequeathed to somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, where were his papers? And actually, I will say that that's one of my biggest... I I actually have been interested in this for a really mm. long time. Yeah. Um, I've definitely heard of it. I, I haven't heard all of the details of... Yeah. There are no what you would call original Shakespeare right. manuscripts. Not a single one. As far as I know, and please, someone prove me wrong. Yeah. Um, as far as I'm aware, no. Not that that would prove that he had written them. It, it, Even if they yeah. had got them. Yeah. And also not that, I mean, once, you know, I don't know why he, it's assuming that he would have kept drafts. Obviously, there are manuscripts from his period because there were plays mm -hmm. that were being performed and yeah. show notes and all say the word Shakespeare, but I guess the original ones where he crossed out words and... Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those don't exist anymore. They haven't got them. Okay. So, 
There was no major public mourning of his death. Okay. Which, if he was a yeah well-known playwright... You think there would be. You would think there yeah. would be. But my argument on that is that he was a well-known playwright. Whether they believe he wrote the plays or not... Yeah. Did this theory, this this is a we'll not get, not a new theory, but we'll it, but it didn't get come, to that. But it didn't come around in like the 1600s. No, not at all. Okay. So the first time that his authorship was openly questioned was in the pages of Joseph C. Hart's The Romance Romance of Yachting. What? In 1848. <laughs> okay. Why don't we have 1800 copies of that book? I don't. Uh, the Romance of Yachting. I want anyway. to fill this room with copies of The Romance of Yachting. <laughs> he argues that the plays contained evidence that many different authors had worked on them. Okay. Four years later, Dr. Robert W. Jameson anonymously published a book called Who Wrote Shakespeare in the Chambers Edinburgh Journal expressing similar views. And now we're going to talk about someone who I feel like you will enjoy in 1956. Delilah Bacon wrote an unsigned article in William, called William Shakespeare and His Play, An Inquiry Concerning Them. And she was born in Ohio. Oh. She related to Francis Bacon. I don't... I actually thought that that would be the case initially, but I don't think I could find any... There was nothing no, that no I read connection. of that. Thanks, Delilah. So, but she d is the first person to theorize that the plays were written by Frank Francis Bacon and a group of other people. Oh, that's interesting. Um, with Walter Raleigh. So Walter Raleigh is the main writer. Okay. Why would they have? That's so weird that they would have chosen someone to. So the plan, they reckon. Okay, so this is a direct quote. Whose purpose was not to, who was to in inculate. Inculate an advanced political and philosophical system for which they themselves could not publicly assume responsibility. Okay. So they wanted to put their slightly subversive political and philosophical views out in the world, mm -hmm. but didn't, as they were major players in the court at that period, yeah. didn't want to have it tied back to them. Okay. So they would have written these as committee, given them to Shakespeare. Shakespeare would have gone out and sold them. Okay. So he was literally just a... Face. Face. Okay. Which doesn't, isn't... Doesn't seem unbelievable. No, isn't totally no, unbelievable. It's, this isn't like a, a fantastical sort of Shakespeare stole someone's... Yeah. I think that's more of the... That's more of what I had heard maybe okay. growing up was that he had, hadn't had written them and had stolen them. Stolen yeah. the writings from somebody else. Not that he had been hired by four much more intelligent people to just be... William Shakespeare be the face of all yeah. of these things. And, and so this is why I say as much as I want to totally dismiss this, yeah. and we will get back to all the evidence yeah. that does dismiss mm -hmm. this, um, as much as I want to totally dismiss this, it isn't... Hard we're to not believe, talking yeah. some of our things that we come up with in this podcast where we can... And would they have chosen William Shakespeare because he was, even though not educated, obviously influential and rich... I, and slightly powerful, so he wouldn't have been able... Like, if these had been, I guess, truly harmful things that had been written yeah. about, he couldn't have been easily... Pushed aside. Yeah, scrubbed He away. was influential, but I think that he wasn't very influential. Okay. His family was well off enough. It was probably more just luck that they chose I William Shakespeare. Okay. I kind of... Him. If we take this idea that in his lost years, he started uh, acting basically as a valet for their horses. Yeah. He would have just met people. And then he started acting on the stage, and he just was probably part of the scene. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't... He had family, but not... Yeah. They weren't in London. He didn't ruffle any feathers. Yeah, he may just have been... Lucky. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. I guess. I yeah, guess yeah. this is the this is the argument we're going with. Yes. So Francis Bacon was the first single alternative author proposed in print. So up in, uh, and that was in 1856. So this whole thing started kind of unfolding in 1848. So between in like an eight year period, this has started to gain mm-hmm. some real traction. And the following year, 1857, Delay Bacon um, published a book outlining her theories. Ten years later, someone of uh, Judge Nathaniel Holmes of Kentucky oh. uh, published a 600-page The Authorship of Shakespeare, which supported some of these earlier theories, and that was when the whole thing started to spread. By 1884, so 40 years, less than 40 years, 30 years after the very first mention of this, there were more than 250 books asserting mm. that Shakespeare didn't write his own stuff. And that was when this idea called the, so the Baconans, which is like, there's different schools believe different people wrote it. Mm -hmm. They're all known under the anti-Stratfordarian banner, but then there's different schools as to who they believe actually did it under that. Francis Bacon's, the Francis Bacon Society was certainly the first biggest one to come up. And we'll talk about why. Um, Delay Bacon traveled to England in 1853 to try and find stuff to support her theories. Um, She sought to unearth buried manuscripts underneath Bacon's tomb, which she believed were in Bacon's tomb. Apparently, she just sat there at the graves. She she believed that she had deciphered instructions in Bacon's letters to look beneath Shakespeare's Stratford gravestone for papers that would prove the works were Bacon's. But after spending several nights in the chancel trying to summon the requisite courage, she left without pulling up the stone slab. Um, it's like desecrating a grave to turn you off of your investigative journalism. Okay, so here's the arguments for why Bacon is the author. Is the author. There's a great number of legal allusions in the Shakespeare canon, and he was the Queen's Counsel, became the Queen's Counsel in 1596 and was appointed Attorney General in 1613. He also paid for and helped write speeches for a number of entertainments, including masked dumb shows. Dumb I shows? I don't know what dumb shows are, although he is never known to have actually authored a play. So he was paid to write mm-hmm. a lot. He only has one verse that was actually attributed to him he was very knowledgeable about ciphers um and many people suspect he'd left his signature encrypted in the shakespeare canon so a lot of people threw them ad infinitum which is why this was such a long article to read um it sparked a whole cipher craze and as far as i can tell the one that seemed to have most (laughs) most uh legitimacy yeah is that the Latin word, and I will never, ever, no, even you wouldn't be able Latin to pronounce this. worthless. Onophoricalibicentiatiabus. <laughs> Great, yep. Seriously, that's the word. That's not even a word. All right, see how Adam does with that word. Honorific, uh, honorific that's the way I want to say that. Yeah. Honorific. Kabila to dinitatibus. 
I think with Latin, if you just mumble and then do the ebus or <laughs> the, the obus, obus, you're good. Yeah, okay, cool. So, <laughs> so you that, got it perfectly. That word was found in Le- Love Love's Labor's Lost, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I don't think I've ever read no. or know nothing about. Nope, I haven't read much Shakespeare. Um, which can be read as an anagram, which <sighs> would be high ludi f baconus natty. Turti orbi. Is it not an actual Latin word? It apparently is a Latin word. Okay. These plays, the offspring of F. Bacon, are preserved for the world, is what that translates as. Feels like you could have picked any word and been like, it's an anagram. Well, that's what I'm saying. Apparently, Bacon was very intelligent when it came to ciphers. Yeah. So that's not unreasonable. It just seems grasping. Yes. Okay. So. Since the early 1920s, the leading alternative authorship candidate. So Bacon was the first one, but not actually the one that people okay. have most belief in. Right. Is the 17th Earl of Oxford. He followed his grandfather and father in sponsoring companies of actors, and he patronized a company of musicians and one tumbler. He was an important courtier poet, praised as such, and as a playwright, um, in list, list, in playwrights included him as one of the best for comedy honors. Um, <laughs> I, he was he was good at writing, um, so he was noted for his literary and theater patronage. Between fifteen sixty four and fifteen ninety nine, thirty three works were dedicated to him, and he actually bought the sublease for the Blackfriars Theater which was one of the big theatres at the time. So he was definitely a prominent member of that community, and he would have known Shakespeare. Okay. I mean, there's no way that they wouldn't have had some form of relationship. But he, they believe that he was one of the most prominent, generally they believe he was one of the most prominent suppressed or uh, anonymous writers of the day. His family connections... Um, including the pa- being the patrons of the person who did Shakespeare's first folio, and his relig- relationship with Queen Elizabeth I, the Earl of Southampton, his knowledge of court life, his private tutors, education, and wide-ranging tra- travels through most of the locations of Shakespeare's plays mm. in France and Italy. By the way, Shakespeare didn't travel. travel so, And a lot of his plays were set... Other were. Other way. So... Basically, if you tie up his biography and the events in Shakespeare's plays, sonnets and poems, there is actually perceived parallels of language, idiom and thought between Oxford's letters that he was writing at the time and the Shakespeare works that were coming out Mm -hmm. at the time. And his Bible had numerous marked passages uh, that appear in some form in Shakespeare's play. So J. Thomas Looney Tune... His name was just Looney. <sighs> An English school teacher was one of the first people to lay out all of this. Um, he used Hamlet specifically to show how closely, I guess, the life of the two intertwined, not the life of the two, the, the writings of Shakespeare's canon and Oxford's lives intertwined. Mm-hmm. And he's now Oxford's become one of the major. Yeah people that they think um and really because they felt like he couldn't take credit for writing plays for the public stage because being writing play being a playwright was still a very <sighs> lewd is the wrong um wording 
it wasn't considered it was a job that other people did. You okay. went to see the plays. Yes. Uh, you could write speeches and poetry, uh-huh. but actually playwriting was considered a subsection of culture that perhaps if you were the Earl of Oxford, you wouldn't want to be involved. You didn't in. want to be attributed to. Yeah. There's another one that uh, that he was also Queen Elizabeth's lover, so she didn't want him involved. Oxfordorians, who is the people that believe in him, said that the dedicate. So that there's some sonnets published in 1609 during Shakespeare's time, and the dedication is to a great playwright. And mm-hmm. the way that the dedication is phrased makes it sound like the playwright is dead. Okay. So it implies that the author was dead and Oxford died in 1604. And actually that's when the year of most of Shakespeare's new plays dried up. Mm-hmm. But to get there totally, you have to actually slightly revise the dates that Shakespeare was writing or that the plays were released. So it's not an exact correlation. But there was a book released in 2004 by a guy named Simonton who said, if the Earl of Oxford wrote these plays, then he not only displays minimal stylistic development over the course of his career, but he also wrote in monastic isolation from the key events of his day. Yes. So they were saying that if he he was so involved in politics and stuff that we would have heard a lot. He couldn't have helped but write something more contemporary. Okay than what Shakespeare mm. was writing, who they seem to think that most of what Shakespeare canon comes is from history books and school books. Okay. Uh, whereas the Earl of Oxford would have had much more... Education. First-hand knowledge. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's almost like the plays are too good to have been written by someone who was had Shakespeare's writing, mm-hmm. but not good enough to have been written by someone with the Earl of Oxford's okay. writing. Uh, Christopher Marlowe. If anyone's read, if anyone has seen Shakespeare in Love, he's the main, like, Shakespeare antagonist in Shakespeare in Love for that reason. Is a, as far as I can tell, no one believes that Marlowe didn't write his works. So he's one of the greatest playwrights and contemporaries of Shakespeare. Um, He was born into the same social class as Shakespeare. His father was a cobbler. Mm. Uh, He was older by two years, but he spent six and a half years at Cambridge University. He pioneered the use of blank verse in English dra- in Elizabethan drama, and his works are widely accepted as having greatly influenced those of Shakespeare. He started pl- publishing earlier than Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. He died in 1593. I believe he got stabbed in like a duel. Okay. That wasn't in here, because, but like that's my... That's in your brain somewhere. In my brain somewhere. But they believe that he faked his death. Oh, cool. Um, to allow him to escape the trial and most certain execution of the charges of subversive atheism. Ooh, no, you don't want that. Ooh. Ooh. So when Marlowe faked his death, they think that Shakespeare was chosen as being his front man mm-hmm. again. So this is the idea that... So Marlowe was like writing in hiding. In hiding. And giving his writings to Shakespeare. Shakespeare and Shakespeare was the one that was going out and doing them uh, because there's many stylistic simili- similarities between the works of Marlowe and Shakespeare. But the other side of that is Shakespeare was probably reading Marlowe's stuff. and Yeah, just influenced by Marlowe. Yeah. Um, Shakespeare's apparently first play, Venus and Adonis, was on sale 13 days after Marlowe's reported death. Mm. So, yeah, the <laughs> there's just so many. It's so long, and I've edited this down, and yeah. it's still like 
so much information. Last one is William Stanley, the sixth Earl of Derbury. Derbury. Who was proposed as a candidate in 1891 by James Greenstreet of British Archives. He was he financed two children's drama companies, Derby, not James Greenstreet. Right. Spent a lot of time at court. He was born three years before Shakespeare and died in 1642. So he was alive through the whole of Shakespeare's career. Career and life. His uh name was William Stanley, so his initials were WS. He often used to sign himself Will, mm -hmm. which would understand why if he did it, some of the sonnets refer to Will mm -hmm. and assigned by Will, mm -hmm. which doesn't really make sense if it was one of the others, except that if they were trying to put it out as Will being the face, then that make Yeah, that makes sense. Sense. Uh Derby traveled a lot through Europe as well, uh, visiting again specifically the places that Okay. That Shakespeare wrote about. That Shakespeare wrote about, and actually at the time that he was writing. Okay. His wife was the maternal, maternal grandfather was William Cecil, mm -hmm. um, who was thought by some critics to be the basis of uh, Polonius in Hamlet, which I don't think means that anything. anything. <laughs> he named uh, Derby's older brother, Fernando Stanley, joined the King's Men, so they probably... Knew each other, mm -hmm. or at least. Was oh, the Kingsman another acting? Troupe? That was his acting okay. troupe. So they would have would have known yeah. each other. So those are the main theories. But nearly everybody does agree that Shakespeare wrote his own plays. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I know I just totally put wow, you out there sucked. as one. <laughs> I was one really thing. hoping that there you were going to be like, well, and those are all great theories, but this is the one that actually proves that. No. That Shakespeare didn't write anything. So one of the things is that um, Shakespeare's father actually got given a, a coat of arms for his glove making. Does that mean that the queen was basically like, I like your gloves? Yes, but okay. it happened after Shakespeare's play started being published. So it was definitely probably something to do with the fact that Shakespeare had some influence. Doesn't H.P. Sauce also have a coat of arms? I mean, lots of play. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> um, it's not like a. <laughs> yeah. So his father was still making gloves even after Shakespeare yeah. was yeah. famous. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. And I okay. guess, I guess, and so is the argument there that he got the, the coat of arms because Shakespeare was his son. Yeah. Okay. And, and so that proves that there was, Shakespeare was influential. Yes. So now we're going to kind but of. But wouldn't they have, wouldn't they have given him the coat of arms if they thought Shakespeare was writing them anyway? Well, and actually, this is one of the major points that comes up a lot mm. in this argument of Shakespeare being the author of these things. Shakespeare being the front man versus Shakespeare being the author uh -huh. is really hard to separate? separate. Okay. Because it would be really hard if someone turned around, if J.K. Rowling turned around like next week and said, I didn't write Harry Potter, yeah. this person did. Yeah. You'd probably believe her. Yeah. If she said like they didn't want to come forward, they didn't want. Yeah. They didn't want the the they didn't want the fame yeah. or whatever. So or their family are very religious and Harry Potter's a wizard or whatever. whatever. Yeah. It's kind of hard without being able to actually say to Shakespeare, Shakespeare. Did you write these did things? Did you write these yeah. things? All these other people. I, I think it's always gonna be There's never not going to be an argument. No. Okay. I can't refute one way or the other totally. But okay. let's give it a go. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So Johnson Marlowe and John Marsden all had uh, playwrights that no one's 
denouncing whether they wrote it or not. They all had quite similar backgrounds. They all had similar brushes with the law, and they were all friends. Okay. There's no real re. I mean, the point being is that it's not unheard of. He wasn't some street urchin that they like. <laughs> he was. His father was fairly wealthy. Yeah. He lived in a fairly educated place. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to think that he didn't go to a fairly good school. Yeah. And was literate. Is there a lot of evidence of other playwrights going to grammar, like, secondary school? Like, yeah, most of them would have gone to school. Yeah. A lot of them went on to university, but that doesn't necessarily mean that... Not everyone did. Not everybody did. And and also, I think I think all you've got to do is look around at people you know to know that going to university doesn't necessarily doesn't equal great writers. Great writers. No. I went to university. I couldn't write a sentence. Um, <laughs> but I'm also quite do- an intelligent human being yeah. in the same way that, like... You didn't graduate university. Yeah. You can write a very good sentence. You can write a very um, average sentence. So I don't think that that can be... You can't equate a university education with being no. William Shakespeare. And most of the arguments of this are known as argumente ex silento, or argument from silence, which basically takes the absent of absence of evidence yeah. to be evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a logical fallacy. So... There are over there are eighty candidates that over the years have been identified as being the true author of Shakespeare. Of course, which means that there's no real argument for any one of them. Right, which is not the same as saying there is an argument that any one of them wrote it. Yeah, uh, it's right because just because there are so many, po- so I. I I might be saying this incorrectly, but I'm assuming that what that means is that it, there are so many. Uh, there are, so many people who, there are so many people who could have written it that that almost makes that almost points to none of them having written yes. it. Yes. Because if you go looking for something hard enough. Especially from that time period. From that time period, you can usually find something as justification. Right. And uh, a lot of people say that actually part of Shakespeare's genius, which may not read to us because we're reading it in our tongue versus his tongue, uh-huh. is actually that the plays were written. Uh, and the characters were written in a way that they would have actually spoken at the time, which means that he wasn't writing with a sense of grandeur. Right, he was writing for like a middle class. Is that, is that yeah, what he, he was writing yes. for his audience? He was writing for his yeah. audience because he actually was writing as his audience would have spoken, which mm-hmm. means it's perhaps as he would have spoken. Yes. So, and it's not just, and so it's a lot of this is us looking back at how he would have spoken. Mm-hmm. Or us, I say that like people in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds when this started, yeah, who are looking back and saying, "Well, no one uneducated could have written like that." But actually, he wasn't. People talked like that. Yeah, he read newspaper articles. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. In conversations, he would have gained this knowledge. It mm-hmm. seems impossible from our perspective, right? Because, but Shakespeare made up his own words. It he has a huge vocabulary because he made up bits yeah. and other stuff. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Moving on. In 1898, um, a, a, a gentleman named Francis Mears wrote, uh, named Shakespeare as a playwright and poet, referring to him as one of the 12 authors by whom the English tongue is might, mightily enriched. So that was during Shakespeare's lifetime. He named 12 plays written by Shakespeare um, in this book. And he refers to Shakespeare as sugared sonnets amongst his private, as as composing sugared sonnets amongst his private friends. Mm. Um, and this was eleven years before the sonnets were even published. Okay. So, 
some contemporary stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a guy named Sir George Buck who served as deputy master of the revelers from 1603. I don't know what that title is, but his duties were to supervise and censor plays for the public theatres. Okay. Which was a big job, by the way, at this point. They were constantly shutting theatres down for doing stuff that was considered subversive right. of atheism and, and various other Blasphemous things. Blasphemous or treasonous. Yeah. Um, and he was in charge of licensing the plays for publication. And he noted on the title page of Georgia Green, The Pinner of Wakefield, an anonymous play, that he had consulted Shakespeare on who'd written it. Mm. It was an anonymous play, but he'd, taught, he'd gone to Shakespeare for expertise on who had written it. Yeah. And he also um, personally licensed King Lear as being written by William Shakespeare. Mm. Uh, someone who, uh, the remains concerning Britannia by a game named Shake, uh, Camden, named Shakespeare as one of the most pregnant wits of the ages of our time. Most pregnant who, wits? Yes. What an expression. Um, whom succeeded ages must justly admire. Ben Johnson, who came up a lot in this. He was the guy that was drinking with him right yes. before he died. Yeah, one yeah. of the guys that got the rings. The morning rings. One of the guys that wrote the prologue for his portfolio. Yep. Um, knew him for about 10 years. Um, and uh, is, I meant to ask this. A folio is just a collected work. Collected yeah. work okay. of poems. And he uh, wrote a lot about Shakespeare and his stuff, like letters and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, and then lastly, there was a guy named... Oh, no. So he also wrote... He criticized Johnson, criticized Shakespeare a lot in his letters, mistaking because he gave Bohemia a coast in The Winter's Tale, which lacks knowledge of geography. So that. Yeah, Bohemia, <laughs> no coast, landlocked. No, but also it, it shows that he didn't, Shakespeare didn't actually know all this stuff. He was just. He didn't travel. No, blindly coasting around. And he criticizes Shakespeare for his casual approach, approach to playwriting. Mm-hmm. He says, I love the man and do honor his memory as much as any. He was honest and of an open and free nature. He had an excellent fancy, brave notions and gentle expressions. So he was a big fan. They were good friends, yeah. best friends. Um, some people think he may have been his lover. His lover. Um, but he does he does openly say that Shakespeare got it wrong, that he wasn't a very good playwright in the <laughs> sense of he wasn't very committed, but yeah. he was a nice man. Okay. Which isn't kind of things you'd say about someone who was a front. No. You'd like, think that he wouldn't have that many... You'd think you'd just shut up about it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, they actually ran a computerized comparison with other playwrights of his yes, period. His contemporaries. Um, and although his vocabulary is large, it's perhaps only because his canon of surviving plays is much larger than any of his contemporaries. And so therefore he visits more settings, themes. Yeah. So he has more ability to use a larger vocabulary. Yeah. It's not that his contemporaries didn't have the same vocabulary as him. He wasn't particularly well-spoken. It's just that there's not as much record of what they've written yeah. to be able to count up the 20-something thousand words and right. say that's how many words he knew. Okay. All right, so they also use computer, and this is where we're coming back to new stuff. Uh, they've started recently in 2010. They use computer programmings to compare the works to 37 of the authors who had been proposed as mm. Shakespeare's. I guess the other 43 were considered total bull. Yeah. Um, and the test, and this in 2010, it's known as the Claremont Shakespeare Clinic. The test determined that Shakespeare's work shows consistent, countable, profit-fitting patterns, just suggesting he was a single individual, not a committee, and that he used fewer relative clauses and more hyphens, feminine endings, and run-on lines 
than most of the writers with whom he was compared. The results determined that none of the other tested claimants' work could have been written by Shakespeare, nor could Shakespeare have been written by them, eliminating all of the claimants whose known works were to have survived, including Oxford, Bacon, and Marlowe, mm. as the true authors of the Shakespeare canon. Interesting. So, science... Science. science says no. Shakespeare Science says Shakespeare stuff. did write it. Although I think actually what science says is Bacon, Oxford, and Marlowe didn't write it. Yes. There is no evidence that Shakespeare wrote it because <laughs> how are you going to get evidence that Shakespeare yeah, wrote exactly. it? Exactly. You're only going to have evidence that you're only going to be able to compile evidence that's. It's not else like there's going to be a photo or a video of no, him that writing. And even then, you could argue the other side of that, which is that he, he was. He was faking it. He was faking it. He yeah. knew what to write in that paragraph, so he wrote it. Yeah. Handwriting examples. Well, he has, there aren't many handwriting examples of Shakespeare. Right. I will say that to me is the biggest red flag. Is that there's not much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People were writing letters All like crazy in this period. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised that there's not more handwritten stuff, stuff by yeah. Shakespeare. So that even if they found, even if they couldn't find the manuscripts, there was a way to confirm his language, his, abil his, his ability to use the English language, language, yeah, signed by him. But then you could always, of course, say that it was just faked. Yep. So, my point being is, I think Shakespeare wrote his plays. Okay. I don't know how I feel because that was a roller coaster. Sorry, I That's took fine. you on a on, a, on a, an intellectual adventure, bamboozling. I I don't know how I feel entirely. Yeah. But yeah. I know. Interesting. I know. And it was a long one. I'm sorry. So that was one of my longest tales I think I've ever told you. It was a long tale. and Surely legendary. I I do. I believe. Um, I'm going to talk about somebody who I'd never heard of. Okay. Um, I think I had heard of some of his books. Legendary in a few ways. Okay. I, w I would say that he, he certainly earns that title, although maybe a bit under the radar for some people if you're not into slightly obscure French philosophy. <laughs> Albert Camus. Not like Shakespeare. Not like Shakespeare, shit. no. But Dora told me she was going to do Shakespeare, and I got into a bit of a panic because I thought that she and Ben were going to be back from a walk a little bit earlier than they were going to be. Um, and I was just going to do the Black Death because, basically, I just just do it. Just do the Black Death, even though we're in the middle of a global pandemic And I, right told, now. I said do something positive. Yeah, um, and so I Google searched tragic authors, and... There were a lot of names on that list. Some of my favorite <laughs> writers were on that list. Um, my favorite writers tend to <laughs> earn their legendary status in their in their horrible ends, where with Hemingway and uh, uh, Faulkner, both basically just being terrible alcoholics, and although penning some of the best American literature. Um, Technically, I think you could argue that. Uh, Shakespeare's alcohol problem was what got him into yeah, trouble, too. Yeah, it's true. A, a, a lot of authors have a lot of problems. But I found a name on there, uh, Albert Cam uh, Albert Camus, uh, okay. who was a philosopher who I'd never heard of. Yeah. And I started digging into his life a little bit, and he had a bit of a strange end. And, I, and so I thought that was a bit... Let's do it. Interesting. So Albert Camus, uh, Albert, Albert Camus, was a French philosopher, a Nobel Prize winner. Oh, a political activist, and he uh, died a strange death. And if that's your cup of tea, you might find this very interesting. He was born November 7th, 1913, in Mondovi, Algeria, when Algeria was still a province of France. Okay. To a working-class family. His father died. And when I say working-class, I mean, like, lower middle class. Okay. They, they, like he grew up with very little material wealth. Yeah. 
both his both of his fa- his parents worked. His father died in the Battle of Marne Marne okay. in World War One, and he was he was known as a Blackfoot, which is what you ca- would call French people who were born in Algeria. Oh, okay. I'm not sure what that's related to because he was Caucasian European in all for all intents and purposes. Okay. So I'm not sure what the Blackfoot was. I'm guessing it was just a way of of casting basically yeah. the lower class in, yeah, okay. in France at the time. Uh, but he was a French citizen, unlike the Arab or the Berber inhabitants of Algeria. So he okay. did have that sort of okay. going for him. Okay. He turned to philosophy in secondary school and was drawn greatly to the works of Frederick Nietzsche and Arthur Schopenhauer, which led him very deeply and quickly toward atheism and nihilism as his main talking points of philosophy. Okay. He attended the University of Algier. Uh, from 1933 to 1936, where he received a bachelor, a BA in philosophy, where he studied Stendhal, Herman Melville, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and Franz Kafka. All of I love all of these people, so he really kind of spoke to me as a as a as a person. Okay. He unfortunately suffered from several bouts of, of tuberculosis, oh. which was very I guess he consumption. Just, he just had, yes, he had a very Weak immune system, it sounded like. He oh, he played goalkeeper in, while he was in secondary school. That's a, a random fact to know, I know about it, somebody. Yeah, it is. Um, from 1928 to 1930, so before he went to university, he played yeah. goalkeeper for his local okay. football club. Um, and he loved the teen spirit, the fraternity, and the common purpose that you found while on a football pitch. Okay. And he found that it contradicted the morality imposed on people by the state and the church. So football turned him into an atheist and a pessimist and an anti-authoritarian, <laughs> which I thought was super All right, well, then that explains why we know that he played football, because well, obviously he would have talked about it. Yeah, um, and unfortunately the tuberculosis meant that he would he could no longer play once he went to university, and it also cut short his candidature for a career as a university tenured professor. Okay. Basically, he once he graduated, he was up for a candidature at the same university, but unfortunately the tuberculosis meant he had to leave. Oh, but because he was okay. sick. Uh it wasn't uncommon in that period. No, so no. obviously his political leanings, he was a left-leaning, uh what they called a prominent left-wing intellectual. He was the member of the Algerian Communist Party from 1934 to 1935. So while he was at, in his formative okay. years at university, and he founded the Workers' Theater. So he wrote, acted, and produced, much like Shakespeare. Uh, plays to working class audiences because he wanted to give Much class. Like he wanted to give class to the working class. He wanted to sort of elevate their culture. Yeah, he wanted to. Place. He wanted to introduce some culture. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, during World War II, mm-hmm. he did enlist. Okay. But because of his tuberculosis, his constant bouts of tuber- yeah. tuberculosis wasn't allowed to serve. Okay. So he worked as an apprentice journalist at the Algier Republican, which okay. was a left leaning political newspaper, uh, criticized the living and criticized the living conditions of Algerian Muslims living in Kabylie. Um, the right time to be, by the way, if you're going to be a communist at any point in history. During World War II. Is, during World War II <laughs> is the right time to do that. He does come back, a, a, I, I say around, like he had some revelation, but he does end up criticizing the USSR and communism pretty heavily. Later on in his career. Okay. So it Totali- sounds like he Totalitarian went- communism. Yeah, like okay. most people, he had a political yes. change. Um, he criticized heavily French colonial policy, which is what led to the living conditions of Muslims living in okay. Algeria. Um, and he 
what he did was he looked at it as a humanitarian, basically, instead of using, like, because I guess people were looking at this as sort of, like, a pragmatic living conditions are this way for a reason. He was like, well, we need to be able to criticize French colonial policy and and say that we can work toward and fix these things. Um, And some of the things that he found were that 40 and 160 children were unable to eat more than one meal a day. Women walking to receive grain handouts, because I, I think the French government was doing that. They were yeah, okay. they were doing like yeah. um what is the word when you when a government ration? Rations, yes. Okay. They were rationing grain handouts and women were freezing to death on the way back to their villages. Thousands of able-bodied people were living in these villages, but they didn't have jobs. They were forced to forage for in, like inedible plants to supplement their poor diet. So they were getting sick because they were basically just eating pine needles and pine cones. Mm-hmm. And when they would try to sell anything for money, the local rangers would persecute them because they didn't have a vendor's license. Okay. So they they, they were just unable yeah. to, their living conditions were atrocious. Yeah. And a lot of the things that he highlighted would lead to the Algerian Revolution. Civil War okay. in, in 1954 or whatever it was. He was quoted in his work, which all of his articles were eventually published in a in a book long after his death, I think. Okay. He said, what can I possibly add to facts like these? Mark them well. Imagine the lives of hopelessness and desperation that lie behind them. If you find this normal, then say so. But if you find it repellent, take action. And if you find it un- unbelievable, then please go and see for yourself. So very politically active, uh, very left-leaning. Um yeah. Okay. And he was living in Paris uh, when Germany invaded. During, okay. So during the French occupation, he was living in Paris. He would fl- uh, flee to Lyon and move back to Algeria to teach, just as a, a okay. precaution of safety. Left-leaning journalists probably don't want to be living in Paris while Germany's occupying France. Yeah, that seems. He started writing for a newspaper called Combat, which was the newspaper that the French resistance used as its sort of voice. And this is when he would start his second bout of philosophical writings. Did Hitler ever get as far as Algeria? I don't think so. I'm not sure, actually. I'm, my my history is... Yeah, my World War II history is... is non-existent for not me. Not great either. He wrote during this period The Outsider and the Myth of Sisyphus. Okay. Um, where he would come up with this term, the absurd, which is the conflict between what people search for in the universe and what we find. Okay. We search for reason. What we find is... The, the absence of reason, that the universe is just a, it's just randomness and that there's nothing we can really do to influence okay. that. And that sort of, this is when he started analyzing nihilism quite a bit, because nihilism basically states that the world has no meaning, therefore life has no meaning. But what he found was, when this was one of the quotes from this myth of Sisyphus, is that, okay. and when we find that life is truly meaningless, that yeah. we can still accept that fact and live our lives anyway. That like that like there's there's still reason to live in a life that doesn't make sense because people can still do that great doesn't things. have a greater yes like you can still do great yeah. things in your life it's even a if there's not a greater purpose yeah to it's your sort life. of like the selfish look at nihilism in the sense that like selfish you live for yourself you don't live for the purpose of the universe okay. or whatever he found that living with this contradiction allows for people to live your life to the fullest because you're not worried about really like any overarching consequence outside of what your fellow person is going. So just do live life to the fullest. And he found that there were three ways that people lived their lives. Uh, I'm digging a bit into his philosophy. This has nothing to really do with why people think he died. I just, I found that his, because I often have 
bouts where I'm like, life just feels like completely random yeah. and, and devoid of purpose. But this sort of philosophy really, so this sort of philosophy really speaks to me that like you live your life for yourself and that like, and, and finding your own importance, like finding things that, that are important to you and doing those things is good. It's just like, okay. it's, it's a slightly pot. It wasn't what I was expecting to find okay. was personal growth going into <laughs> the research of this episode. So he found, so the three things, Things that people live for, uh, revolt, that we must not accept any answer or reconciliation in our struggle. Okay. Uh, freedom, that we are absolutely free to think and behave as we choose. Mm -hmm. And passion, that we must pursue a life of rich and diverse experiences. Okay. And that four characters live within these three means. There's the seducer, who has passions for the moment. Okay. The actor, who lives the compressed passions of a thousand lives. As a, like real hard as a career, <laughs> the rebel <laughs> who derives their energy from political struggle and the artist who creates entire worlds. Out of interest, where did you peg yourself? Uh, the seducer. <laughs> really? <laughs> the passions of the moment. Okay. Certainly not the rebel or the artist and certainly not, well, maybe the actor, the seducer or the actor. So in 1951, he drew heavy criticism from Marxist critics because okay. for his book, The Rebel, where he wrote uh, a treatise basically against political revolution. And I didn't read this, and I pulled. You didn't. I pulled this. Adam, I pulled, how dare you half-ass your research? I pulled this quote from from someone at Britannica who's okay. much smarter than me and understood this. Okay. The true rebel is not the person who conforms to the orthodoxy of some revolutionary ideology, but a person who would say no to injustice. He suggested that the true rebel would prefer the politics of reform, such as a modern trade union socialism, to the totalitarian politics of Marxism or similar movements. Okay. The systematic violence of ideology appeared to Camus, Camus to be wholly unjustified. Hating cruelty, he believed that the rise of ide ideology in the modern world had added enormously to human suffering. Though he was willing to admit that the ultimate aim of ideologies was to diminish human suffering, he argued that good deeds did not authorize the use of evil means. Okay. At the beginning of that sounded like word salad, but towards the end I was on board. So... The so Marxism, mm -hmm. it, uh, I believe, is described as the ideology of the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Okay, that the the end is ultimate human equality. Yeah, that but the but the policies that Mar that the Marxist government and the the USSR was employing led to famine, poverty, and yeah. a, a, essentially a government that was lording over its okay. its its people. Yeah. And he was not a fan of that. Good. He was a he was what was described as an anarcho syndicalist and a libertarian socialist. So that the individual is the most important thing, and we should respect the individual rights of all people. And that the government should basically step in where it needs to. Okay. It it's it's not so. <laughs> so that so the socialism thing that social yes, programs I get the socialism that that, thing. that so that social programs should exist yeah. without stepping on the individual rights of okay. of everybody. I like this guy. I think he's so England. Yes, yes. I think he he might have some issues with some things that that the English that the government does. I wouldn't know any of them because he's dead now and he never spoke out against things because he was living in a time when Marxism was like well, the he prominent was, there was such totalitarian. Extremism, yes. extremisms he at that point. Exactly. So that's and some people say that like he he's a bit misguided because he was living in a time when the, the totalitarian extremes were 
Nazi Germany and the USSR. Yeah. But I think that, like, you can still absolutely use these points. Cool. Anyway. He's developed, he's found a new fan. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I might read some of his other stuff. Uh, post-World 2, post-World 2? Post-World post 2. Post-World War 2, he continued. <laughs> what post-World we in now? <laughs> Three? I don't know, post-2020. Post-World War II, he continued to criticize totalitarian communism, uh, driving a wedge between himself and many of his contemporaries. He was a strong supporter of European integration. Okay. Uh, he was the head of the French Committee for the European Federation, quoted as saying, Europe can only evolve along the path of economic progress, democracy, and peace if the nation states become a federation. So big EU guy. Yeah, big EU guy. Okay. He was very vocal against the Soviet intervention in Hungary. And totalitar the totalitarian tendencies <laughs> of Franci Francisco Franco Bahamonde in yeah, Spain. I said that sentence five times. That was fast. that was a tough one. Yeah. Um, I didn't know Franco. I didn't know that name as a totalitarian leader in Spain. But apparently, he popped up after Hitler went down and was just sort of a seriously. My knowledge of modern history is negligible so, for me. So small. Um, in 1957, he received the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature. He was 44, which made him the second youngest recipient after Ruyard Kipling. Oh, really? Yeah, my dad. And he died. This is where we get to his death. Now he's gonna die. He died only three years later, on January 4th, 1960, okay. in a car accident. He was traveling with his publisher Michel Gallimard and Michel's. Wife and daughter. Okay. Uh, Michelle lost control of the car, crashed the car into a tree, and Albert died instantly because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. This is a PSA. Always wear your seatbelt. Okay. Especially if you're an anti-Marxist living during the Cold War. Yeah, I mean. So the, the death is slightly suspicious. Okay. In that... I'll get into it. So people think that That's it might have, people think it might have been a KGB orchestrated death with the the sign off from the French government because the French government was doing a few totalitarian things. Okay. Um, because he was a you know he was a vocal critic of the USSR. Giovanni Catelli wrote a novel in 2011 where he interviewed where he had read the diary of Jan Zabrana, who was a Czech poet, okay. who suggested that Camus' death was not an accident. Did he have any evidence of that? The accident seemed to be caused by a blowout or a snapped axle in the car. Okay. The experts were puzzled as to this happening on a long stretch of a straight road, 30 feet wide, with little traffic at the time, because they were driving quite late in the evening. Okay. And if you if your tire blows out or your axle snaps on a straight bit of road, you're, you just coast along. You kind of just stop. You don't necessarily wrap yourself around a tree. Was there any evidence of how fast they were going? No, I didn't. I didn't see that. It, I, it seemed to be quite a high speed okay. because the the theory is that the tire was rigged to pop okay. with some sort of stint yeah. that held it open and then would collapse the tire once they started moving fast enough. Okay. And that the his death would have been ordered by Dmitry Shepa Shepalov because of because he was because of an article that Camus wrote. Um, okay. Shepalov was the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Hungary for the USSR at this point. Not a fan of a left-leaning revolutionary. Yeah. Who just won a Nobel Peace Prize. Exactly. The author, uh, Nobel literature. Yes. Uh, Catelli also spoke to Jacques Verger, who was a controversial lawyer for some reason. Um, and he also believed that he staged an accident but was unwilling to divulge more information because he was worried for his life. Okay. 
all of this I totally buy. Yes. So now we're going to get into the skeptic, Allison Finch. Oh, all of my sources, by the way. I'll get into those now since they're on this page. Uh, Britannica, The Guardian, The New York Times, and Wikipedia. Yep. Allison Finch, uh, who is a French literature professor, believes that the stable of people who consider this to be a French conspiracy are sort of suspect themselves. Okay. They're a creative writer. This yep. is a quote from her. A creative writer, a film director, mm -hmm. a Czech writer translator who had been oppressed under communism okay. and had every reason to hate them. And a lawyer who may have supported the Algerians during their uprising, but became infamous for defending the indefensible, as most defense lawyers tend to. Yeah. Or most prosecutors tend to. So there's a lot of conjecture as to whether or not he was actually killed by the KGB. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it would be impossible to believe that he no. had been because they were doing a lot of that sort of stuff. But it's whether or not you believe the sources in this in this particular book. So if you want to look into this more... You... Well, I mean, not even that, though. There's like, you don't have to believe those sources to believe that there could have been... No, that's you true. You could just think, okay, well, this is a distant at the time where they were killing people off. Yeah. It's not unbelievable vocally, that, 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 they, that they would have You could have come to that conclusion with without yeah. those people. He was prolific. He was outspoken. Yeah. He was considered one of the prominent... Where do you fall? I am in... Since, because I love that this turned into a Russia episode at the end of it, even though of I've been hard banned yeah. from doing Russia for the next three or four months. Um, especially in a time period where they had covered up Chernobyl and the dial yeah. path path. Pass incident. I am inclined okay. to believe that they would eradicate yeah. anyone who was outspoken against their ideology. I do have. There's like not. There's no real hard evidence. The the car. I don't think showed any evidence of being tampered with. There might have been the tire may have. And people do have car accidents. Yeah, I the, mean the tire may have exploded in a very suspicious way, but that is circumstantial at best. Yeah. Um, yes, and like you said, people do have car accidents, but that's what they want you to think. So maybe they just pulled <laughs> off the greatest. It's a bit like Shakespeare. Yeah, and there's no evidence really to suggest that. The absence of evidence is not, not evidence, evidence in itself. No. Um, so let us know what you think. Well, we did, unintentionally, we did writers and authors. Yeah. And, and suspicious. Where we have very little, we don't know. No. Um, we haven't come, usually we do come to fairly... Concrete. Concrete yeah. conclusions as to how we feel about stuff. But we're leaving this one open-ended. So well, all of you tell us how you think. Did Shakespeare write his plays? And was Albert uh, Camus murdered? You let us know in the in the comments of our Instagram or tweet at us. My gut says yes and yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to believe that Albert was murdered. Uh, I don't think it's coincidence that you piss a whole lot of people off. No, especially so, like especially an organization like the USSR. Yeah, I don't think it's coincidence that you very publicly piss a whole load of people yeah. off. And then die. And then die in slightly fishy circumstances. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, next week's Christmas. Yeah, next week is Christmas. I'm talking about Krampus. I'm going to talk about Icelandic trolls. Cool. Those sort of tie together, actually, I think. I think they... Slightly. Yeah. I haven't got too deep into them yet. No, that's awesome. That'll be a really fun one, guys. Um, so definitely so, tune in for that. Because I realized we haven't done anything about Iceland. No. Um, no, I'm talking about the Alps, like uh, the Hungarian, Bavarian... Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, both going to be slightly sadistic Christmas things. Yeah, which is 
dope. So tune in for that one, guys. And then I was wondering if the week after or coming up, I was thinking I might go into the truth behind a Disney movie or film. Okay. A corporation. No, not Disney itself, but like Snow White or... Oh, yeah, yeah, like compared to the... Compared yeah, yeah. to the original tales and yeah. where they may have come from, I didn't know if you wanted to join me we'll on do a, a... We'll do a Grimm's fairy tale. Like a, you pick something from... Like something that Disney have become well known for. Yeah. And we'll go back yeah, in that'd time be cool. and see... That'd be cool. We'll refute Disney. Yeah. That'd be awesome. I mean, yeah, I'd absolutely like to do we that. haven't done something like that. No, that'd be really... Comparing two tellings of us in the same yeah. story would be great. Yeah, so tune in for those two. Those will be very exciting. So Christmas and then something Disney-esque. Yeah. Um, thank you guys for listening. Yep. We've been the Legendary Tales. You are all legendary. Rate and review us on iTunes. Give us those five stars. Follow we'll us on Instagram. S- now follow us on Twitter. And f- like the Facebook page. We'll send you a mug. Yep. A mug. It's Christmas time. You want free gifts. Yep. And we have other stuff that you can pay for on the website. Yeah. If you want to get your grandma a tote bag with a picture of a grandma on it, do it. Do it. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Yep. And yeah, rate, review, subscribe. If you haven't subscribed, by the way, if you're just listening to this, because we had a really good week last week. We yep. saw a huge boost in numbers, which was really, really cool. But if, if you're you, joining us for the first yeah. time off of the My Favorite Murder. My Favorite Podcast. podcast. Yep. Facebook group, thank you. And yeah, we absolutely. hope you stick around. So we've seen some cool jumps in numbers and we're really excited about that. But please make sure you subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell your grandma. Tell your dog. Tell your personal trainer if you're still seeing a personal trainer. <sighs> Not meaning to sound like first world problems here. But, but I would love a personal trainer. I could drill do with a personal <laughs> trainer right now. Talk about like the freshman 15 I've put on the Corona 20. I know. I know. I'm feeling... I'm feeling like what I really need is a trainer to be like, get out of bed. Stop eating whispers. <laughs> oh, God, I do love a good whisper. <laughs> All right. Well. Okay, guys, bye. Bye.